Hey, everybody. Happy Monday. It is August 22nd. I'm Mo Shwanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. I try to read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. There's a lot to get to on this Monday as we begin another week. First, I'll bring you more on that apparent assassination attempt on a top Vladimir Putin advisor. The incident ended up killing his daughter. We'll have details on that. We have a few headlines in this edition on gas prices, oil production, and jobs. You will be talking about this week. We'll also look ahead to a big decision on student loan deferments. We got an update on that on Sunday. We have a headline developing out of South America where Colombia, the world's largest producer of cocaine, is looking at decriminalizing the drug. We'll tell you what that might mean. Here at home, dozens of people got sick eating Wendy's. We'll tell you about how widespread that is. And we'll end the podcast today with some new developments on the effort to get rid of cellulite. Some new technology is being developed right now. Okay, the big story we're gonna be watching this week is what develops out of Ukraine. This week will mark six months since Russia first invaded the country. And this week will actually also mark Ukrainian Independence Day. And we got some developments over the weekend. Russian authorities said Sunday they have officially opened up a murder investigation after a car bomb killed the daughter of an influential Putin advisor. The woman killed was a 29 year old by the name of Daria Dugina. She died on the spot after her Toyota Land Cruiser she was driving just southeast of Moscow exploded in a small village. Her father, Alexander Dugan, is a senior advisor to Putin. He's a philosopher who's been referred to as Putin's brain. He was set to ride with her on Saturday night, but chose last second to take a separate vehicle. The Russian investigative committee, basically Russia's version of the FBI, said they believe that someone planned and ordered the car explosion that killed Daria Dugina, the, the daughter, to also target Alexander Dugan. This is based on evidence they say they have so far gathered from the blast. Dugina herself is a hardline right-winger who's been very pro-Putin. She actually said that some of the documented Russian atrocities and war crimes committed in Kyiv were staged by the Ukrainians, but it is her father who many believe was the target of this explosion. He's credited with being the architect or spiritual guide of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Alexander Dugin for years has advised Vladimir Putin, has significant influence over him. As I said, he's been referred to as Putin's brain by Foreign Affairs magazine. His larger philosophy, and this is something that Putin has adopted over the years, is that Russia made a big mistake. The Soviet Union in essentially allowing all these small nations to have independence over the last 25 years. And so his philosophy is that Russia should get large again, should basically take over all those previous countries, including Eastern Europe, including Ukraine. So we've essentially seen this philosophy manifest itself with the continuing control they have over Belarus and most recently six months ago when Russia invaded Ukraine. Late Sunday, we heard from a mysterious new group called the National Republican Army. They have declared responsibility for this bombing and the killing of Dugina. One Russian lawmaker who claims they have a connection, essentially they've been authorized to speak on behalf of this new group, says the group issued the following statement, quote, we declare President Putin a usurper of power and a war criminal who amended the Constitution, unleashed a fratricidal war between Slavic peoples, and sent Russian soldiers to certain and senseless death. Despite that claim of responsibility, a number of Russian media outlets, those that are very close to Putin, pointed the finger at Ukraine for the incident and said that Ukraine should be prepared for retribution. An advisor, though, to the Ukrainian President Zelensky denied any Ukrainian involvement. They said, we are not a criminal state unlike Russia. Though the Ukrainian government did advise employees in the capital of Kyiv this week to work remotely amid concerns that the buildings, 
or their vehicles would be targeted for attack. This all comes as the war this week will turn six months old, six months since Russia first invaded Ukraine. They thought it was going to be a short war. It has turned into a slog. The state of play right now is that Russia has control over about 20 to 25 percent of the territory, but was not able to take Kiev and major cities as quickly as they had hoped. In the last couple of weeks, we've started to see explosions inside Crimea. This is a territory that Russia took eight years ago. With new guided weaponry from the West, from the U.S., Ukraine has started to be able to target deep inside territory that Russia has taken. It is unclear at this point how much the Ukrainians will be able to push the Russians back, but this is clearly doing some psychological damage, according to experts who are watching this, who are speaking to the Financial Times. One of the areas we'll be closely watching this week and in the coming weeks is the area around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. This is the largest nuclear power plant in all of Europe. It is located in an area that is currently being disputed between the Russians and Ukrainians. Russia took control of it earlier this spring. The Ukrainians are trying to bring it back, but it's concerned a lot of uh, outsiders, the US, the UN, a whole bunch of observers this week, that they literally are playing with fire around a massive nuclear power plant. Experts who spoke to the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and AP this weekend believe that the plant is pretty secure, but continue to insist that the two sides avoid open military conflict near Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Ukraine's President Zelensky has also warned that Russia could do something, and these are his words, particularly cruel as Ukraine prepares to celebrate its Independence Day this Wednesday. That's the date that actually also marks six months of Moscow's invasion, but it also marks more than 30 years of Ukrainian independence from the Soviet Union. I will have a conversation this week. Uh, it'll be the third part of my interview with the former CIA director, Michael Morell. We will be publishing it on Wednesday, August 24th, which incidentally, as I mentioned, is the six-month mark of the war and Ukrainian Independence Day. We'll dive into how this war might end, what the U.S. has done right, what the West has done wrong uh, when it comes to the Russian invasion, and he'll take us inside Putin's brain. He is a former KGB agent himself. Morell spent decades at the CIA. So he'll give us a sense of how Putin thinks about the world. Okay, back here at home, this Tuesday will mark 11 weeks until midterm elections. These are the big elections where we will be voting for every member of the US House, a third of the US Senate, and many governors will be up for election in states where you live. The Washington Post is reporting that President Biden is getting ready to start campaigning on his accomplishments. His hope is to, at a minimum, uh, prevent major losses of the House and Senate. Right now, Democrats control both. He's hoping to defy historical headwinds here. Typically, presidents lose seats in Congress in their first midterm year. And on top of that, his popularity has been very low this year. So he's hoping to get out there and campaign on a number of things, including the gun control bill he passed a couple months ago, the Inflation Reduction Act, which just passed last week, which was climate, uh, healthcare, et cetera finally getting gas prices down, getting Ayman al-Zawahiri. There's a whole bunch of things on the list that the White House has that they want to be able to tell America about and say, this is why you should be electing Democrats. Now, typically when presidents are popular, they're invited on the campaign trail, but that is not the case for Biden, whose approval rating has been down near 40% for most of this year. The Washington Post was reaching out to a number of candidates across the country asking them if they want President Biden to campaign with them in their state or their district. Many of them, the Post notes this weekend, did not respond to the question or said things like, this is uh, Senator Michael Bennett's campaign in Colorado, who's a Democrat in a state where Biden won by a lot. His campaign said, quote, no comment from the campaign at this time. 
This is in response to a question of whether he wanted Biden to campaign with him. Another spokesperson for Congressman Tim Ryan, he's a Democrat running in Ohio, another very competitive race, told the Washington Post, we have not asked President Biden or VP Harris to campaign in Ohio and have no plans to do so. Now, a few Democrats said they weren't opposed to having Biden appear with them, but they're not exactly embracing the idea either. This comes as NBC has a new national poll out this weekend that shows the president's approval is still underwater. They actually went through a whole bunch. They asked in the national poll, and this covers Republicans and Democrats and independents, uh, how they feel about the following parties and individuals. Biden, 40% uh, positive, 48% negative. Kamala Harris, 32% positive, 50% negative. The Democratic Party, 34% positive, 52% negative. And again, it continues to Republicans. It appears that Americans don't really like anybody. The Republican Party, 34% positive, 49% negative. Donald Trump, 36% positive, 54% negative. And Mike Pence, 25% positive, 44% negative. All you have to know in terms of both parties, the current president, former president, current VP, former VP, all of them have more Americans who dislike them than like them. The NBC poll was conducted by a longtime Democrat and Republican pollster. They work together. Uh, it shows a number of things, including just a generally dissatisfied American public. Three quarters of voters say the country's headed in the wrong direction. 58% say America's best years are behind it. And 61% say they're willing to carry a protest sign for a day because they're so upset. While the poll says that things were worse for Democrats earlier this summer, things are still not great, especially if Democrats are looking to keep power and the majority in the House and Senate this November. Okay, a couple other political headlines we were watching this weekend. The U.S. Education Secretary, that is Miguel Cardona, he was out on Sunday saying the White House will announce a decision this week on whether to extend a pause on federal student loan debt. The current deadline is August 31st. That is when the current moratorium on loan payments expires. Cardona was over on NBC's Meet the Press and said the announcement was forthcoming. He wouldn't give many clues, though. For those of you who are impacted by this, payments have not been required on most federal student loans. These are not private loans, but federal student loans since March 2020. That's when the pandemic hit, greatly affecting the economy. And effectively, at that time, the Trump administration made the first call to create a moratorium on loan repayments. So Trump extended it a couple times. Biden has extended the pause four times, most recently in April. The White House was essentially arguing that it was necessary to allow federal student loan borrowers to get back on their feet. And so the deadline is up again on August 31st. You know, what's interesting here, as a number of observers have said, is now for nearly more than two and a half years, people who once were paying and budgeting in federal student loan repayments haven't had to pay. So they're sort of taken for granted now. They sort of budgeted not repaying it which I think is weighing on the administration as to whether they're going to extend this, whether we will ever see federal student loan repayments come back on a regular basis. So it's not yet known whether the administration will just focus on that freeze on student loan repayments or if this big announcement that they're planning this week will also get into a more permanent solution like canceling student debt. We've been watching this story since January 2021. That's when Biden first came into office. He's been facing a lot of pressure from some Democratic lawmakers, including some senior ones, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, some others, to cancel up to $50,000 in debt per borrower. Now, the president has championed forgiving up to $10,000 in debt per person, but no official announcement has been given on debt forgiveness. This is something that a number of you have been direct messaging me on on Instagram for a year and a half. So we'll be watching this week as they make a decision, whether again, it's just an extension of the moratorium from the past two and a half years, 
or a big announcement. The thought here is that the president would make this announcement close to midterms. We are getting within three months now of midterm elections to help Democrats get across that finish line in November. One other thing that struck me in the interview Cardona did with NBC, and this is something we've been talking about on the Instagram feed, he was asked about lowering qualifications for teachers. This is because of the teacher shortage. We've been reporting that in a number of states, they're allowing uh, students who are still learning to teach, uh, get their undergrad degrees to already begin teaching, veterans uh, who are looking for jobs to also teach. Some of you in the teaching community and the education world have been critical of these efforts, though there are administrators that are like, we have to fill the classrooms with teachers, especially places where a lot of Americans have been moving to, like Florida and Texas, where they're seeing an influx of students and do not have enough teachers. The Education Secretary Cardona said that there are other ways to bring in new qualified teachers that do not involve lowering the standards. He says the government's looking at ways to ensure that teachers are getting properly paid so they stay in the profession. And he says that they need to, quote, get creative in how we get qualified teachers into the system. Another Biden cabinet secretary was out over the weekend on the Sunday shows. That was Jennifer Granholm. She made some news in saying that the U.S. is set to produce a record amount of oil next year. Her assessment is that the U.S. will produce 12.7 million barrels per day by 2023. That is up from the current 12 million barrels a day. The previous record was back in 2019 before COVID, before things got shut down. That was 12.2 million barrels a day. So if Granholm is right, if the numbers are accurate, we will be exceeding the record level by about 500,000 barrels a day next year. That news comes as oil prices are down big from the record peak in June. Gas prices are down below $4 in most of the union at this point. And Granholm believes that pending no major shocks to the system, that is where gas prices will remain for the rest of 2020. Okay, staying with the economy here for a second, there's a big jobs headline I spotted in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. American companies are now on pace to reshore or return to the U.S., nearly 350,000 jobs this year. That is according to a report expected on Friday from the Reshoring Initiative. That's an organization that lobbies for bringing manufacturing jobs back here to the U.S. That number, if it remains 350,000 jobs back to the U.S., would be the highest number on record since they began tracking jobs data in 2010. There's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, number one, the pandemic and the associated supply chain crisis has pushed many executives of many American companies to think about bringing their businesses back home especially as they dealt with all those issues of getting their product and their various parts from Asia, from around the world, back here to the U.S. and had such a struggle with it. On top of that, you had Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That upended commodities market. That's another motivator. And that has had a number of companies now looking at China and Taiwan. Obviously, China, a huge place where a lot is produced when it comes especially to electronics, other parts, uh, clothing, manufacturing, etc. They produce chips for smartphones, personal computers, cars. There's a fear that a potential war between China and Taiwan, similar to Russia and Ukraine, a Chinese invasion, similar to the Russian invasion, could again hurt the supply chain. So you see a lot of American companies now bringing production back here. The federal government's also been trying to lure companies to bring things back to America. You had the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, both passed this month. They provided tax breaks, other incentives for companies to start building and investing in manufacturing here in the U.S. for everything from electrical vehicles to pharmaceuticals to semiconductors. Now, one warning here is despite this headline, not all the jobs that come back here are necessarily going to go to human beings. One note observers say is that the American worker makes three to five times as much as a foreign laborer. And so automation will be key here. Some of the numbers we're tracking is that North American companies ordered a record nearly 12,000 robots worth nearly $650 million in the first quarter 
of 2022, meaning that 2022 might surpass last year's record numbers in terms of what things are being automated, being used for robots. So just keep in mind that, yes, some jobs will be coming back here. Some of them will be well-paid jobs, but that in order for these companies to continue to make the profits that they are accustomed to, that some of the things they'll be doing back here is building a manufacturing hub, but using things like robots. All right, on the legal front this week, one of the things we're watching is the trial of the mass killer in the Parkland school shooting. This is taking place down in Florida. The prosecution has been spending the last three weeks telling jurors how Nicholas Cruz murdered 14 students and three staff members at the Florida high school four years ago. Now Cruz's attorneys, this is the public defender who's defending him and their team is going to present why they believe he did it hoping to get him sentenced to life without parole instead of death. A reminder that this trial is not about whether he did it or not, he's already pled guilty, but really to decide his sentence and whether the prosecution's aggravating circumstances outweigh the defense's mitigating factors. Essentially, is the prosecution presenting enough to give him the death sentence, or will the defense provide a compelling enough argument to put him in prison for the rest of his life? The defense team has started to publicize some of the things they'll be talking about when they start to make their case for Nicholas Cruz this week not getting the death penalty. They will begin laying out their 23-year-old client's life history, his birth mother's abuse of alcohol and cocaine during her pregnancy. It led to him possibly having fetal alcohol syndrome, severe mental and emotional problems. They will also go into alleged sexual abuse by a trusted peer of Cruz's, the bullying he endured, his adopted father's death when he was five. And they will note his adoptive mother's death four months before the school shooting at Parkland. It's part of their broader strategy, not to deny or lessen anything prosecutors told the jurors about the massacre that Cruz committed, but the defense is essentially going to say, look, you saw what happened. We're not going to argue that it wasn't terrible, that it wasn't awful, that it wasn't horrific. But what they're going to try to say is that based on all of these circumstances he had growing up, all these issues related to his parents, abuse, etc., that he never really had a chance to have a normal life. And because of that, that his victims never had a chance. What's notable here is that Parkland is actually the deadliest US mass shooting to ever reach trial phase. The nine other gunmen who killed at least 17 people died during or immediately after their shootings, either by suicide or police gunfire. Though we will have another mass shooter up for trial soon. That's the shooter who killed 23 at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas back in 2019. Okay, let's head abroad here for a couple of headlines. And this one comes out of Finland. This is the story I've been following closely on my Instagram feed. The Finnish prime minister over the weekend took a drug test. This comes after a video was released, was leaked out online of her partying with friends, drinking, dancing. Uh, some in Finland felt that this was inappropriate for the prime minister. She's a 36-year-old prime minister. Sana Marin is her name. She's one of actually a handful of millennials that are currently running countries. And so this video leaks out of her drinking and partying and some other politicians were critical, said you should take a drug test to prove to us you weren't taking drugs at this party. Notably, some people believe they heard the word powder in Finnish uh, in the video, though she says that wasn't the word powder. Nevertheless, they thought they heard the word powder, aka cocaine. You should take a drug test, Madam Prime Minister. And so she said this is totally offensive and totally unnecessary, but she's going to take a drug test. We will get those results in the coming days. This is not the first controversy this prime minister has had with partying late last year after an alleged COVID exposure. She went out partying till 4 a.m. and did not bring her work cell phone. That turned into a whole controversy late last year in Finland. And so this is reinforcing uh, some questions people have in Finland over whether she's mature enough for the role. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who feel she's doing a great job managing her country and are telling people to relax and let her be able to let loose once in a while. 
one of the questions I got, uh, especially as I noted her age from several of you on Instagram were how many millennials are currently running countries? And so I looked into this and there's a few uh, folks born after 1982 who are running countries. That's kind of the demarcation point of millennials. That includes, of course, Finland, as we've been talking about, Kosovo, Chile, El Salvador, and the country of Georgia. And those are the democratically elected leaders. There are two other millennial leaders who we, uh, let's say, did not take power via democratic means. That is the uh, one and only Kim Jong-un over in North Korea, the dictator of North Korea. He's 38, allegedly. And uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, while his father is king, crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, as known as MBS, 36 years old, effectively runs Saudi Arabia these days. By the way, for those who are curious as to why I've been so into this Finland story, I will tell you that I did do a journalism fellowship in Finland back in 2007, got to uh, spend some time in the country, nearly two months in Finland, which was amazing to get to know the people, get to know the country. And so there's always a special place in my heart for interesting news headlines coming out of Finland. All right, I want to stay international here for a second. This story comes out of Colombia. Colombia is calling for an end to the war on drugs and says it wants to start a new global experiment decriminalizing cocaine. Two weeks after taking office, the country's first leftist government is proposing an end to prohibition and the start of a government-regulated cocaine market. Keep in mind, Colombia is the largest producer of cocaine in the world, the source of more than 90% of the drugs seized in the US. It's been a key partner in DC's never-ending war on drugs. It's also the home of the largest DEA office overseas. So through legislation and alliances with other leftist governments in the region, this would include Peru and Bolivia, officials in Colombia are hoping to turn their country into sort of a laboratory for drug decriminalization. The president of Colombia, that is Gustavo Petro, said in his inaugural address, it is time for a new international convention that accepts that the war on drugs has failed. It's a pretty radical turn for Colombia and one that could upend a, its relationship with the U.S. that we've had for years. Cocaine was responsible for an estimated 25,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. just last year. And so the U.S. is very opposed to this. A former DEA official who spoke to the Washington Post said he fears the move will limit the agency's ability to collaborate with the Colombians on drug trafficking investigations. The U.S. has spent billions funding a strategy to try to destroy cocaine trade at its point of origin, the fields in rural Colombia. It's led to a multi-decade war in Colombia that has killed hundreds of thousands of Colombians. That's the big argument leftists have been making in places like Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, that this war is not worth it. This is just a, a failed U.S. policy, and it goes back 60 years to the Nixon administration. The U.S. has trained, has used intelligence to propel Colombia's military for this effort to eradicate coca, which is the base plan for cocaine, dismantle drug trafficking groups, and the leftists are arguing this has not worked. So it'll be very interesting to watch what happens here. The U.S. Uh, has had advisors go down there. The Biden White House is down there trying to tell them, let's not open up cocaine and legalize it. But there are a number of advisors who are working in the new administration down there in Colombia who are saying, let's try to regulate the sale of cocaine. So far, the war has not worked for the last several decades. Okay, one more international story, and I bring this to you, especially as someone who grew up in Chicago, watching the 1990s Chicago Bulls, including the one and only Dennis Rodman. Rodman did an interview with NBC this week, and he says he is headed to Russia in an effort to free Brittany Griner. She's the WNBA player who was sentenced to nine years in prison recently, and Rodman tells NBC News, quote, I'm trying to go this week. I got permission to go to Russia to help that girl. Rodman, who we remember, won a number of NBA titles, including with Michael Jordan and the Bulls. He was the uh, bad boy who would change his hair color all the time, had those 
all those major relationships uh, with a number of famous women, has in recent years tried to get into international politics. He's befriended people like Kim Jong-un. He actually was at the summit in Singapore that Trump had with Kim Jong-un. And Rodman has also had previous meetings with Vladimir Putin. Back in 2014, Rodman first met with Vladimir Putin and said that the Russian president was cool as F using the full word, of course. And so he believes he has a relationship with Putin can help free Griner. It's unclear who Rodman has gotten permission from to go on this trip. The State Department has been telling Americans not to head to Russia, but Rodman says he's going to head there this week. So that's something we should all be watching. Okay, a quick fast food warning for those of you who love maybe the number six at Wendy's, as I once did. The CDC says it's investigating an E. coli outbreak in four states that has sickened 37 people, put 10 people in the hospital, and there's a possible link to Wendy's here. The CDC says the source of the outbreak has not been determined, but said many of the sick people had reported eating sandwiches with romaine lettuce at Wendy's in Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania before they got sick. So far, there are 19 people who fell ill in Ohio, 15 in Michigan, two in Pennsylvania, one in Indiana, and the CDC says the true number is likely to get higher. There have been no reported deaths linked to the outbreak, but several people have been hospitalized. Wendy says in a statement it is cooperating with the CDC. It's removing romaine lettuce, which is probably the only healthy thing in some of those sandwiches, as a precautionary measure. Wendy says they do not need to remove romaine lettuce from its salads because that lettuce comes from a different place than the lettuce that goes into its sandwiches. But the CDC is still working on all of this. But anyway, fair warning for those of you thinking about going through the Wendy's drive-thru this week. Now to our final story, and I guess the first thing you should probably be doing if you're looking to avoid cellulite is avoid that Wendy's drive-thru. But this is a story on some new technology that doctors are discovering and utilizing to try to eliminate cellulite. The Hollywood Reporter has a new story out, and I'll link to this in the show notes, on some recent advances in non-surgical skin toning and tightening devices related to eliminating cellulite. The technology they're talking about is one called QWO. I think that's Q, Q? It is the first FDA-approved injectable enzyme treatment for cellulite on your rear end. It offers an array of promising cellulite-busting tools. The Hollywood Reporter, of course, interviews a number of Beverly Hills dermatologists for this, including one Harold Lancer. He works on people like Margot Robbie and Beyonce. And Lancer tells The Hollywood Reporter that he's focusing on a handful of key new treatments for cellulite. So he's using a number of things here, including uh, something called the M-Sculpt Neo Machine, N-E-O Machine, which is a combination of radio frequency and electromagnetic energies to help tighten some of the underwires, the fibrous attachments between the skin and the subfat lining. This reduces some of the superficial fat. Then he brings in something called the Morpheus 8M8 uh, radio frequency microneedling technology to penetrate and help with cellulite prone skin. There's a number of technologies here. There's another one that works on the belly button and the inner arms, another one uh, which is called a sculpture filler. Anyway, I will link to it in the show notes. Uh, it does give you a good sense of how much time and technology is now being devoted to cellulite elimination. By the way, that Ku machine, I think it's called Ku, right? Q-W-O, there's a lot of pros and cons. One doctor tells the Hollywood Reporter, apparently one downside is bruising for two weeks, so I guess don't use this Ku machine if you're looking to get out on the beach immediately, but uh, it is fast and doesn't hurt according to the doctors. So uh, again, I guess, you know, avoid the fast food from the previous story and uh, go check out some of this technology. The Hollywood Reporter uh, is reporting on some of the innovation when it comes to cellulite elimination. All right, I wanna thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast as we begin another week here as we close out August. Let's have the summer last as long as possible. I'd love your feedback on how we're doing, on what we're covering. Email me 
podcast at mo.news. Of course, subscribe to our newsletter, the Mo News newsletter, over at monews.bulletin.com. And follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on. And give us a review. Every review matters and helps us continue to build, expand, and grow the show. I'm so grateful for everyone's support, all those five-star reviews. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.